0: Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. Hey
1: everyone, this is Jason Gillikin, producer of the Donald Thompson podcast and CEO of EarFluence. Real quick before we get to the show today, this interview with David Gardner was recorded in front of a live audience at American Underground in Durham, North Carolina, kind of like a fireside chat right before the world shut down due to COVID-19. This was a unique opportunity to hear from seven-time entrepreneur, turned angel investor, turned venture capitalist, David Gardner, and he talked about why he started the co-founder's capital funds, why he wrote the book, The Startup Hats, which is now an audiobook produced by us at Earfluence, and why he invests in the entrepreneurs rather than the ideas. Amazing insight from one of the best investors in the nation, and we'll be sure to put on more of these types of events when we're allowed to meet again. But for now, here's Donald Thompson's Fireside Chat with David Gardner.
2: You can't stop me. Nothing's going to stand in my way. Nothing. Nothing. Really I right up front it felt like you And so we talked for a little bit today. The book is amazing in its simplicity for how it talks about growing your business. So without anything further, I'd like to welcome Mr. David Gardner. <laughs> So, David, to get started and uh, for you to just uh, kind of set the table a little bit, tell people a little bit about your background, not so much the business part, but a little bit about where you grew up and then pivot that into how you started as an entrepreneur.
3: Sure. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I, I would not recommend my particular path of staggering around, and but I was the first person to go to college on either side of my family and did not have a lot of guidance. Um, I thought you just studied stuff that was interesting. And so I ended up with degrees in philosophy and a master's in theology and dead languages. And I, I often say the best thing school did for me is it left me with absolutely no marketable skills uh, because if no one will hire you and you need to make money, you're an entrepreneur. I, I did start writing some software. I'd gotten a, a, an IBM PC, one of those big luggables with the nine-inch amber screens, which you guys don't know anything about. But uh, it weighed, I think, 42 pounds. That's awesome. And uh, so uh, when you carried it to the library, that was your workout for the day. It was, uh, but uh, I started writing some software uh, for people and building and assembling some computers. I couldn't afford a computer, so I ordered parts and kind of assembled my own. And other people said, wait, hey, would you do that for me? That's a lot cheaper than buying, you know, uh, off the shelf. And so back in those days when you uh, put a, when you, you would uh build the computers, you put in a network, you wrote the software, you trained the staff, you wrote the training manual, and you did the support calls. That was the IBM model of a solution. There wasn't a whole lot of off-the-shelf software to uh, to pick from that didn't run on a mainframe somewhere. So uh, that's kind of totally by accident. I never meant to be an entrepreneur. It's just uh, I discovered I had like $60,000 in student debt back in the 80s, which was a, a massive amount of money. and. They actually like you to pay those back uh, at some point. And uh, so I was just trying to pay back student loans and make ends meet.
2: So that's great as a a backdrop. When you think about being an entrepreneur and starting down that that path, what are some of those lessons learned, right? What are some of those mistakes? What are some of those things that you've reflected on over the years that you would share with our live audience here and and those that are
3: following on the web? Sure. Uh, Well, I mean, I did everything wrong, uh, initially. I guess the one thing I did right is I didn't do things wrong for long. I would try something. If it didn't work, I'd try something else. And, uh, you know, everyone says that, that Darwin, uh, taught, you know, survival of the fittest, that the most intelligent and the strongest survive. That's not the case. What he actually said is the most adaptable survive. And uh, I think that's really true in startups is that, uh, you've got to, uh, have a plan. You know, it's not right but you always got to have a plan and you execute on that plan and you be honest to the what you're getting back the feedback that you're getting the metrics that you're getting you adapt that plan rinse and repeat go back at it and eventually you're gonna you're gonna figure it out that's why in investing world we invest in jockeys not horses what that means is a bad idea and a great entrepreneur will make you a lot more money than the other way around so we want people who move quickly and systematically rinse and repeat and, and have that process. And they have a confidence, not the confidence that they're always right, but the confidence in the process that they are executing on will lead to the right results eventually.
2: Oh, that's really powerful. Let me seize on the component of the, the jockey metaphor. How do you determine that? when you're meeting people because when you're evaluating a business you're looking at financials you're looking at the product market fit all those different things but you describe the most important thing is the qualities of the entrepreneur. How do you do due diligence on that entrepreneurial spirit?
3: Well the fastest way to learn is just lose a lot of money by uh, (laughs) investing uh, in the wrong people. And then you learn, you go, Oh wow, don't do that again. You, you learn to do background checks. You learn not to invest in someone with a bad credit score. If they can't manage their own money, they certainly can't manage a company. You learn to look for certain things. And, and this is the, there's a lot of art and science to investing. We certainly run the numbers and do market sizing and model the business and, you know, all of that. But, uh, there's also a, um, a lot of art to it. You know, we want entrepreneurs that are articulate. Can they articulate the message? If they talk for two minutes and I still have no clue what they do, they're probably not gonna make you money. Um, I want entrepreneurs that are pushing me. They have this sense of urgency and they're pissing me off because they call me every other day with some update. Uh, and But I like that. I'm like, you know, this, this person is uh, is aggressive and is gonna get stuff done, you know? If we're calling them back going, hey, how's the business doing? You know. probably not gonna not gonna work Um, there's lots of things we we look for references are massive Uh, a lot of people talk a good game but it's much harder to hide from your past so we spend we'll do 40 50 interviews um, as part of our due diligence process we want people who you've reported to teachers employers people who have worked with you people who reported to you we're gonna get a pretty comprehensive view of, uh, of who you are and how you think. Not only to decide whether or not to invest or not, but once we invest, we're stuck with you. So we've got to help you. And we need to understand you. Well, Everyone's got strengths and weaknesses, things that are right-handed, things that are left-handed. So part of that diligence process is us understanding that entrepreneur and where they're going to need help and what kind of team we need to help surround them with to, to mitigate their, their, their weaknesses.
2: Uh, that's fantastic. When you're looking at... The difference between being an entrepreneur, which you've done personally, uh, an angel investor, and now you run a fund. Take us through that progression, right, in terms of why you started CoFounders Capital.
3: Yeah, I mean, though, you know, you think all those things are related in some ways they are, but, but wow, uh, they're just very different. I had a huge learning curve at every one of those steps. I thought because I was a good entrepreneur, I'd be a great investor. That's a really cocky mistake that we all make. Running a company is very different from being an advisor, an investor. You're not making the calls and the companies, you know, I'm in 50 companies uh, from my angel investing and my two funds. We don't make any decisions. The first thing I tell the CEOs is, look, I don't make management decisions. I, I, I can't hold you accountable unless you get to make all the decisions. Now if you ask me, I may even force you to endure a sad story how I did something similar and really messed it up one time. But Ultimately, you've got to make all the decisions. So now you're leading through influence, through asking questions, through asking for the right metrics. and um, That's very different than being the chief executive officer, where you can just say, do this, do that, get this done, you know. And, and you're also, you've got to trust the people that you're hiring. I, I think a mistake that I made early on in angel investing is I assumed entrepreneurs would do what I would do in that situation. And that's just not the, uh, not the case. Another mistake I made a lot is investing in a great idea. It's really not so much about the idea. It's about the entrepreneur. I always say, you know, I made my investors money, but it wasn't always on the plan. I showed them. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you've just got to, you know, shuck and jive and, and pivot and whatever. Th- those are things that you learn in angel investing. And then as you move into professional investing, again, it's, another, it's a whole other thing. Being responsible. I love being an angel investor because it was my money. I didn 't answer to anybody. I could do what I wanted. It didn't matter whether it was in the thesis of my fund or whether it was what I told my investors. You know the problem with having a fund thesis is you tell your investors i'm going to invest in X, this geography, this stage, these amounts, these technologies. If you don't do that, they tend to sue you. Uh, so you know. <laughs> So you've got to, uh, there's reporting requirements, and uh, you're looking at, oh gosh, how much money am I going to need to protect these two companies, and are we going to produce, what if this company's off plan, do I have enough capital reserves, am I overexposed in this area? So there's this higher level of portfolio management. And I'm really lucky that I have some fun mentors, Alex Osedensky and um, Scott Albert, who teaches in it now, but, uh, and they've had, you know, they have decades of fund experience. They are just great at advising me on how to, to manage the fund and, and what proper ratios are for doing things. And, and so they, they've really helped me avoid a lot of the mistakes, I think, of, uh, you know, your first couple of funds.
2: Yeah, that's pretty powerful. And one of the things that I would just echo is you'll find the most successful people are still very open to feedback and seek out advisors. And it's amazing, even in my limited experience as the angel, how many people feel like they have all the answers and they're just going to do it that way. Here's David, a very, very successful entrepreneur investor, and he still has mentors and is in that listening mode as well as that coaching mode, which is really, really powerful. Let's pivot to the book, Startup Hats. You condense your knowledge right into a book. Why did you do that? Where did the idea come from to take the time to to, to put it on paper and now it's going to be on audio and now it's digital? But where did that, uh, the genesis of that book come from?
3: You know, I started writing, I was putting together some notes to help entrepreneurs that I was working with. And at the time I had invested in Filter Easy and Philitic uh, here and a couple of uh, Archive Social. Yep, I had some. just invested in, in some of those companies and I was spending a lot of time saying the same thing over and over. And I was like, you know, I should just write this down, you know, and uh so I, I, I started writing down and giving them 18, 20 pages of stuff. And then uh, eventually it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I said, I should just make this into a book. And then it, it, this, I kept sa- found myself saying, hey, you've got to put on your banker hat here. Or, oh, you've got to put on your sales manager hat here. Yeah. And I kept using that hat analogy when I was talking to entrepreneurs. And so uh, I said, you know what, this is, you know, that could be every one of these hats could be the chapter of a startup book. I kind of took things that I had learned as an entrepreneur and some lessons from some of the companies that I had invested in yep. and uh, tried to make that very, very readable. It's not a, uh, a finance degree kind of book because I don't have a finance degree or an MBA or anything. But, uh, it's a, it's a book from the School of Hard Knocks on, on how to think and how to go about starting a company. And each of the, the, the problem with being an entrepreneur is you have to do everything reasonably well. You don't have to be an expert in anything, but you've got to be able to do a little finance. You've got to be able to do a little sales. You've got to be able to, to manage. You've got to be able to recruit. You know? So all of these are hats that you have to wear reasonably well, because they're anybody else. It's just you. <laughs> and you've got to wear that hat long enough to get things going to where you can hire someone who's a lot better at that than you are and bring them into your organization. And so that's why I thought the hats was a good metaphor for uh, a startup book.
2: And I echo that. It's a great, easy read, but the nuggets are things that you can apply tomorrow. And those are the kind of books as a business leader that I like because if I have to think too heavy about the subject matter, I'm probably not going to apply it tomorrow. And in that economy of now, we need information and knowledge that we can fix a problem we have uh, in the next hour or the next day. And so from that standpoint, I'm a super fan of the book. When you look at uh, Co-Founders Capital, talk about your fund thesis for a minute. Sure. And then also, this is the second fund. So just talk about that transition in the, the size and maybe one or two success stories that you care to elaborate on if you can.
3: Sure. Well, when I started doing angel investing, I was in a bunch of companies. And one of the hardest things, well, I started off not investing. I started off just being a free mentor gotcha. to startup companies. You know, after the seventh company, my, my wife really wanted me to retire. And, and by the way, retirement's not everything it's cracked up to be. Um, you know, you think you enjoy your hobbies and your your leisure. You enjoy those things because you don't get to do them often. You enjoy those things because they're special. And you feel like you deserve it when you've worked hard and you go home and you get to play a game on the Xbox or do something, you know, that you love. If you do that all the time, you're not going to like it anymore. And so... Uh, the Chinese curse, be careful what you wish for, you may get it, mm-hmm. is, uh, is very valid. What you need is something that you're excited about, that gets you up in the morning. You need some challenge, something that could go either way. And you've got to live by your wits and figure out how to make it go this way and not that way. That's what I think makes life interesting. And you've got to have a purpose. I, you know, Someone asked me the other day, what do I fear? I said, the only thing I fear really is irrelevance. You know, I want to always feel relevant. And then when I do have leisure time, I feel good about it because I've earned it. So anyway, just a, a life lesson there that you probably won't understand until you, you know, so many things people tell you and then like until you're there, you don't, you don't get it. But um, I was just helping the kids. I was working a lot at NC State with uh, some of the entrepreneurs out of there. What I discovered is, you know, I could help them with their plans and their, their fundraising decks and all that, but uh, getting money was tough. Even the angel groups around here—you're lucky to get a hundred grand out of out of any of the angel groups in North Carolina—and it's just how do you start a company on a hundred thousand dollars? That's really tough, especially if you've yeah. got a you know six-eight month R and D cycle writing software or something. That's right. So uh, I realized that the thing that they needed help with was uh, was getting capital together, and I was like, "Well, I have capital. Maybe I should." Uh, and I spent a lot of time working with these guys, and uh, so maybe I should do some investing. That's so true. kind of reluctantly. I, uh, I started putting some money into these startups, and they were doing well. The problem with putting money in a startup is then you have to like, protect your investment. So you're really in then, and you've got to help them with any crisis that comes up. And you know, you're only running out of money in a startup if you're doing really well or not doing really well. And so it's a lot of, lot of fundraising. After a while, I said I should pool other people's money. Other people wanted to invest because my, my first three or four investments did really well and other people wanted to invest with me. And so I remember things that I told entrepreneurs, like when you're looking for investors or putting a board together, always get more than capital. If you're parting with equity, always get more than money. You want someone who who not only has money, they also have industry expertise, big Rolodex, they can be an advisor to you or bring credibility to what you're doing. And so I said, you know, I should take my own advice. I should put together a group of investors that are CEOs, Influential people in the startup community and because if I take a little of their money along with mine I get more than their money now They've got to protect that investment so when I call them up and ask them to help this company with their marketing strategy or with you Know uh, hey, can you make some introductions to some other? You know hospital systems they're willing to do that because they have a vested interest now in my success which means they have a vested interest in the success of our portfolio companies. Yep. So it was all an evil strategy to get mind share more so than money out of those early investors. So uh, I talked to my fund mentors, and they said, David, we just want you to know it's really hard to raise a fund. It takes, on average, two years. You're going to have hundreds of meetings, and your first fund is probably going to be $3 to $4 million to 4000000 dollars and, uh, and it'll take at least two years. Well, in 30 days, I had had a couple of dozen meetings and raised $12 million. So uh, I stopped taking money. I was like, hey, this is a seed fund. I don't need any more money than that. That's a, that's a lot of money for seed investing. Because you don't want to have more than you know, 15 to 18 kind of investments. In and that's about all you can manage in a fund. Gotcha. So we deployed that capital and learned a lot the problem that i we ran into is investing's kind of been a moving target over the last, you know, 5 to 7 years. The funds have gotten so big. It's it's a little bit of a misnomer. You read all of this venture money is now out there. But i want you to know that money is going to later stage companies, not to startup companies. And because these funds are getting bigger and bigger, they have to write bigger and bigger checks. And i keep telling the economic development people in North Carolina this. We're not going to get a $500 million fund in California to fly here to write a 200 k angel check, they're just not going to do it. They've got to write five, $10 million checks minimum. And so the companies have to be far enough along to take that check size. Gotcha. And uh, as the funds get bigger and bigger, it actually gets harder and harder for startup companies to find capital because no one wants to write a check that small and do the heavy lifting of early stage investing. That is something we have to do ourselves here in North Carolina. Gotcha. And that's why our fund is focused on North Carolina. Almost all of our investments are, are in North Carolina. One of the things is the A round. When I was an entrepreneur, when you got to about, uh, with a SaaS-based software business, when you got to about a million dollars in recurring revenue, you were clearly in A round territory. Uh, the investors would line up to write you a, a three, five million dollar check for your next round, and you were off. So you only had to raise enough seed capital to get your minimum viable product out the door, and get to about a million dollars in recurring revenue, and you were there. Today, we hear over and over again, as we syndicate you know, A rounds, well, we need you to be at three, four, five million dollars in recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. We can't write, we have to write a $10 million check. We can't write a $3 million check. Gotcha. And so this is a huge, this is a fundamental shift in early stage uh, investing. So I realized that for my next fund, what we really needed was a large and it sounds crazy having a thirty, forty million dollar seed fund, but the fact is not only is it a seed fund, now you have to protect those investments because that goalpost on the next round of funding just keeps moving out. And I honestly don't know where it's going to stop. So, you know, the first rule of investing is make sure you have enough dry powder to protect those investments. And so when we invest now, we'll start off with a 700000 hundred thousand dollar check and we'll set aside a few million dollars for that company. Uh, to make sure that we're going to be able to see them all the way through the process. So that I think that our fund, the way we position fund two, is right for the, the environment that we're in at, at this time.
2: No, got it. You know? When you look at the startup hats and yourself as an investor, where were you the strongest and where were you the weakest and needed most help and coaching and grooming?
3: I was articulate. And that was always a big help for me because I could articulate the vision. And what I wanted to do. And I could articulate the value props to customers. I could articulate why people would want to come work for my risky little startup. And the potential of doing that. And that made me good at sales. Which, let me tell you, you got to do sales. I mean, you're in sales. I don't care if you're the CEO. When the deal's big, you're going to be in sales. Every one of my CEOs. And that's the other thing we look for is can they sell. Because you're constantly selling people on why they should give you money, why they should work for you, why they should buy your product why they should not sue you, uh, you're selling. The thing that I was not good at early on was just managing people. I really just thought if you told people what to do, they would go and uh, the, the concepts of empowering someone with a, uh, yeah, <laughs> giving someone a fiefdom, letting them decide the tactics, agreeing on performance metrics, and then just being there to support them, but letting them do it their way. But yet checking in, you know, uh, there's an art to managing people and not stifling their creativity. You don't want to make people into gophers, you know, go for this, do that. They really got to feel that they're contributing. And so often I would know the direction that I wanted us to go in, but I would bring a team in and just start asking questions and wait till someone in the room would light on it. And then it would be their idea. And I was like, I like Bill's idea. That's a really good idea. We need to we need to figure out how to do that. You guys go put together a plan and come back. And But figuring out how to get people to feel that they're really contributing yes. and that they're empowered to make decisions. I was fortunate in one of my early companies. I had a partner and uh, he couldn't sell anything. But he was a great manager. Gotcha. And so uh, I learned a lot about how effective he was with people and how ineffective I was. And you know that's a thing about good entrepreneurs. They stop beating their head against the brick at some point and go, you know, there could be a better way. And so we, we like we like smart and adaptive. And so that was a that was something that I really had to figure out. And the last few chapters of my book, people have told me, are the most impactful for them the chapter on management and the chapter on leadership. I think one of the analogies I use there is uh, from uh, Stephen Covey. The manager is making sure that all the woodcutters are cutting down the trees appropriately. Uh They're meeting their quotas. The teams are showing up. Everyone's well-staffed. The saws are sharp. They're following safety protocols. That's a great manager. The leader's the guy who's climbed the tallest tree and yells, wrong forest, you know. It's a... (laughs) Uh, but that that is the, the difference and why I separate management from leadership in my book as two very different hats. No, that's super powerful.
2: So last question for me, when you look into the future for North Carolina, right, one of the things that you made a very conscious decision, the majority of your investments are here in North Carolina. What do we need to do as a state, as RTP, to continue to grow, right? We've gotten recognition. Moving to the triangle is now more appetizing than it has ever before. But how do we keep the ball moving? What advice would you give maybe to our government? What advice would you give to entrepreneurs, business leaders, to make this a thriving place for startups to, to be able to really nurture and grow?
3: Yeah, you know, I think we've actually done a really good job. I look at what was available here in the 80s when I was starting companies in the 90s versus today. I mean, we have co-working spaces. We have grant programs and, and a lot of mentors. It's fashionable now for entrepreneurs to give back. And, uh, and that's really cool. We have the entrepreneurship is the fastest growing degree at our university programs now. They have funds. I participate in a scholarship at State that lets students after they graduate stay on campus for six months to work on their business idea and actually get a stipend. So they can awesome. eat in the cafeteria, keep their dorm room. Because surprisingly, uh, as soon as they graduate, the parents wanted them to get a job and start paying back student loans. And yep. So we figured out how to bridge that, that gap a little bit. So all this stuff is is fantastic, Um, and I think we do a really good job. We have a very supportive entrepreneur ecosystem here. What we don't do well is just funding. There is very little capital here in ratio to the number of startups that we have. I mean, we're seeing three or four plans a day, a day. And we are one of the few, maybe even the only venture fund in North Carolina that will write a pre-revenue term sheet. Angel groups are great, but... In North Carolina, they typically don't have enough money to fund a company. And so they like to follow. If we if we write a term sheet, they'll follow us. Gotcha. But um, you got to have someone who will write that pre-revenue term sheet and will put in enough money to get the company off the ground. And uh, that's really hard. A lot of the venture funds that are in North Carolina deploy most of their money outside of North Carolina. Just because there are venture funds here doesn't mean that they're committed to putting that money in North Carolina companies. I, I did... The co-founders capital because I saw this this gap there's a lot of investors here in North Carolina who want to deploy their investment dollars where they live and so uh, we gave them a vehicle to do that
2: no I appreciate the time you're spending with us in the openness to, to share your perspective David thank you so much thank for spending you time with them
3: oh.
1: All right. That was Donald Thompson and David Gardner. David talked about his book, The Startup Hats Master the Many Roles of the Entrepreneur. That book is available in paperback on Audible for one credit, or even on Kindle. Check out the show notes for a link. And one last thing before we go, if you like the show, give it a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you do your social media thing. Until next time, I'm Jason Gilligan, and you've been listening to the Donald Thompson Podcast.